This is the Rundown. The rundown. The Rundown. Hosted by Luke Lipinski. 98.7 FM, Arizona's sports station. Live from the auction community studio for the next two hours. Luke Lipinski here with you. Jesse Morrison behind the glass doing the fist pump. And I, I just, Jeff Darge is just here dancing. Jesse, does Jeff is, is has he been dancing for the last twenty four hours, and the show just happened to start, or is he dancing because of the start of the show? Dancing because of the start of the okay. show. I, I I purposefully said, Jeff, stay to dance. <laughs> See, that's the sort of commitment I love. Jeff, don't you even think about going home? It's time to dance for thirty seconds. Uh, yeah, okay, we got a full two hour show tonight. It's uh, sort of a crazy week with the Suns playing tomorrow and Wednesday. Obviously, the D backs starting their series with Miami. Uh, tomorrow too. So we won't have shows tomorrow or Wednesday, but we got one tonight. And we got a lot to talk about. Going to go draft heavy here for a little bit, but I want to start, got to start with this story that it didn't get buried over the weekend by any means, but you know, NFL draft weekend, there's a lot of focus on football. Phoenix Suns have the best record in the NBA. That's where we're starting the show tonight. 46 and 18. How can you not start right there? Uh, do we at least have to address the fact that they nearly blew an 18-point lead against the Oklahoma City Thunder? Yeah, I, I guess. I don't understand what I – don't, I don't get it now. I mean, we are 64 games into the season. I don't understand why they can't just put these lesser teams away. It is very, very weird. But whatever. They keep winning the games. They took care of Utah uh, over the weekend, now have the number one seed – not locked up, obviously. You still got eight more games, and and technically, I mean, you're you're tied with Utah. You just you have the tiebreaker because you keep beating them. The Nuggets are three games back. The Clippers are three and a half games back. It's those four teams. Those are the top four teams in the West. When we go into the playoffs, it's just a matter of what order you finish in. And what's sort of tough, I guess, if you're really any of those teams, is you don't necessarily know that finishing second is going to be better than finishing fourth like right now the Jazz are the two seed and they would play whoever wins the play-in round with the seven eight nine and ten which at the moment is Portland Memphis Golden State and San Antonio the Suns are the one seed they would finish they would play whoever finishes second in that play-in but like if you're the three seed you're the Nuggets you're playing the Lakers if you lose a game and drop behind the Clippers you're playing Dallas in the first round it's very bunched up with those four teams at the top and then and you've got Dallas, the Lakers, and Blazers all tied in 5th, 6th, and 7th. The Lakers dealing with the injuries they have dealt with and and falling down the standings the way they have, I mean, they're 3-7 and seven in their last 10, and, and they've had Anthony Davis and even LeBron now for, for a little bit of that stretch. And that's just the, that's the wild card. Somebody, one of those top four teams is going to end up playing the Lakers in the first round, and they shouldn't have to. And I just obviously don't want it to be the Suns, I think your best bet is certainly to stay in the top two. My thought all along was that LeBron would come back and make sure that they just didn't have to dip into that play-in tournament. And then he came back and he's kind of banged up again. And he's just talking about how he doesn't like the play-in tournament. So they may end up dropping down into like the seven spot. If you finish number one, I think you avoid the Lakers. That's about the only place where you have a, a guarantee at this point. And even that, it's it's not it's not really a guarantee. But we have to just... Just enjoy the fact that this team that hasn't made the playoffs in literally over a decade since 2010 is now the number one seed with eight games to go. And, you know, the the, the game against Oklahoma City last night, 
And it's something we've seen a lot this season. They just they don't play the full 48 minutes against the bad teams. I really do think it is that they go out there, they take them seriously, then they get a huge lead, and they're like, okay, we got this. I can't believe they would still be doing that, but Oklahoma City just lost by like 14,000 points the night before. Oklahoma City's not keeping a game with the Suns close unless the Suns let up a little bit. Again, at the end of the day, I don't really care. They lost by 57 to Indiana on Saturday. Oklahoma City did. That was the second half of a back-to-back last night, and they nearly erased an 18-point deficit. I don't really care if the Suns win by 3 or by 15 because this is not college football and you don't get points for how much you win by. It's just weird. It's just weird that they don't they don't hammer these teams. But they're not going to be playing any of these teams in two weeks. Regular season for the Suns ends two weeks from last night against the Spurs. And then uh, it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be great finally seeing playoff basketball at the same time that we start to get more fans back and, and uh, at sporting events, I mean, it's you're going to have more fans at games, and you're going to have Suns fans finally at a playoff game. So I almost feel bad for whoever the Suns play in the first round. Anything beyond that, anything goes. But uh, but the first round, assuming it's not against the Lakers, that's around the Suns probably should. Uh, you have to feel pretty confident they're going to cruise. Certainly, if they're just playing the way they've been playing. I mean. Look at the last, this four-game winning streak. Okay, over the Knicks, the Knicks are not a bad team. Beat the Clippers. I know the Clippers are beat up. Beat the Jazz. I know the Jazz were beat up. And then beat Oklahoma City, who is, that's actually just their roster. It just, it looks like it's beat up. All right, let's get into the rapid reaction. The Rundown Rapid Reaction. Rapid Reaction. Reacting to today's top three trending sports stories. Well, the NFL draft is in the books. Round one on Thursday night of last week. This is the first time we've gotten to do a show, a rundown show, since uh, since the draft even began. Uh, round one, I was on with uh, with with Vince Morata and Max Starks, and we were doing the roundtable after uh, you know Burns and Gambo and and, and Bickley and and Wolf all did theirs. Um, you know, it, to start the draft for the Cardinals with a linebacker. It doesn't really seem like it's a pressing need. Was was an interesting choice, but I know, and I know, I know, Gambo's been saying this too. So maybe this is this is why it wasn't necessarily a shock on draft night that they really like Zayvon Collins, and uh, and and they're very high on him. And ever since the draft was uh, concluded, I mean, Steve Kime and Cliff Kingsbury are still talking very highly, speaking very highly of Zayvon Collins and how how fortunate they feel uh, to have gotten him. I was doing the uh, the. The 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th round, the Saturday draft coverage with Jordan Bird. So I want to give him credit for this I, this, this, uh, this thought. But it's a pretty good one. If Zayvon Collins goes out there and performs at the NFL level like he did in college and performs in such a way where he backs up the way he talks, he's going to be a fan favorite. Because the Cardinals really just look over the, I don't know, the last 5, 6, 7 years the biggest personality on the team in terms of, of speaking publicly like to the media and the fans is DJ Humphreys, right? Jesse, would you agree with that? Just in terms of just like public speaker, just just that sort of personality. Yeah, I mean, you, you could... Are you talking about somebody that's like funny or goofy? Because I wouldn't say that's David Collins, but I mean, just, I don't know, Fitz talks a lot. 
Yeah, but I'm just like somebody that'll give you like sound bites and somebody that's gonna somebody's gonna give you like I like Fitz. Buddha Baker. Baker's the only one, but even he doesn't talk like he doesn't have that many memorable quotes after games, right? Like DJ Humphreys, you're right, is goofy, but he gives you memorable quotes. David Collins already has memorable quotes. I mean, he got drafted and said we're gonna kill everybody. That was like his that was his draft call with Steve Kime. So I just you look at this Cardinals team, they've had they've had some legitimate star power over the last five, six, seven, eight years. They've got it right now with Kyler Murray, but he's not really like a big quote. Chandler Jones, not really a big quote. Chandler Jones is a funny guy when he talks, but he just he doesn't, you know, he's just not a, a huge talker. Zayvon Collins seems like he's going to be a talker, and so if he's able to back that up, that's a good combination to to quickly become a, uh, a fan favorite. We'll get back into the draft here shortly. Major League Baseball, the D-backs have won 10 of their last 13, and they definitely are getting a, a little bit lost in the shuffle right now. I mean, Friday night you had the Suns playing the Jazz for first place in the NBA. You had rounds two and three of the draft where the Cardinals were taking a receiver that they are gonna, they're hoping is going to make some plays for them. Uh, you had the D-backs playing the Rockies. You had the Coyotes playing Vegas. It has been, it's been quite the uh, the run here for the D-backs now, winning ten of their last thirteen. They are fifteen and thirteen overall. They're doing a lot of this without their best hitter. Uh, I mean. Madison Bumgarner has looked good now three straight starts. I'm not going to, I don't want to get like carried away and be like, oh, he's back. And now the D backs have a, a pure ace, but that's three good starts in a row. A lot of times when you have a pitcher throw a no hitter or whatever Major League Baseball wants to call the no hitter he threw on the 25th, a lot of times their next outing, they're just, they're not very good. He was, he was decent. Five innings, one earned run against the, uh, the, the Colorado Rockies. Almost called him the Avalanche. There's too many different sports going on in this show. Former uh, affiliate of, the Rockies actually used to be the Avalanche. See that, and that's clearly what I meant. So that was it, yeah, a good save yeah. by you. The ta- the first baseball game I ever went to. Oh well, wow, okay. Uh, and hockey, the Coyotes, four games left. They are three points back of the St. Louis Blues. They took three out of four possible points from Vegas over the weekend. They they shut Vegas out on Friday night, and then they uh, <laughs> they got a point from Vegas on Saturday night. Got kind of a tough uh, penalty called on them in overtime and then Vegas promptly scored on the power play four on three but either way three out of four points from Vegas that's pretty good uh, pretty good weekend probably have to win out to have a realistic shot of making the playoffs but they're still in it with a week to go all right when we come back we'll get deeper into the Cardinals draft just general reaction seven uh, seven picks five of them on defense how much better is this football team now than they were a week ago at this time that's next it's the rundown with Luke Lipinski on 98.7 FM Arizona Sports Station Rundown, 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. All right, the NFL draft has come and gone over the weekend, and the Cardinals, seven picks after they traded up into the fourth round to take Marco Wilson out of Florida. uh, Corner on Saturday morning, and they finished with five of their seven picks being on the defensive side of the football, which is interesting. I mean, we had the poll question up on ArizonaSports.com today, how do you grade the draft? And that's that's always such a tough thing to do. I mean, we're not going to know until these uh, until these guys actually play. I know that's like the most basic answer you could give, but, it, you know. But for the fun of it, we asked, uh, we asked the listeners, what grade would you give the Cardinals draft? And it is basically a split. 40% C, 40% B. Very few A's or F's. 
that's kind of what it is, right? Like, it wasn't a flashy draft by any means for the Arizona Cardinals. But we were looking at this over the weekend, and the last time the Cardinals had a draft that was just kind of like, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. You know, it, it not, you know, you, you take Kyler Murray with the first pick, that's a flashy draft. Even Josh Rosen, you trade up to take a quarterback with the 10th pick in the draft. You know, that's the sort of draft where Trent Dilfer's calling into your, your, uh, your draft roundtable afterwards saying that you guys just won the draft and you're going to, to multiple Super Bowls. Even if it doesn't happen, it was still flashy during the draft. The last time I can remember where it was just kind of like, yeah, okay, they, you know, let's, let's see, it was 2015 where they took DJ Humphreys in the first round with the 24th pick, Marcus Golden in the second round, David Johnson in the third round, Rodney Gunter in the fourth round. At the time, like that draft was like, okay, he went offensive lineman, you know, kind of latish first round. Marcus Golden could be decent out of Missouri. Uh, who's this running back, David Johnson? You know, he, I, I like I like running backs in the third round because that's usually where you can you can get a good one without having to give up too much draft capital. But now you look back, and that's one of their best drafts since Steve Kime took over as GM. It might be their best draft, honestly, top to bottom. Um. Because a lot of these, you look at their first-round pick, it's like Robert Kimtichi obviously didn't pan out. He's in Seattle now. Uh, Hassan Reddick, mixed results. I mean, he was good last year. Josh Rosen, that didn't work. The recent guys, like Isaiah Simmons, you can't. It's it's way too early to judge those. But it is interesting that the last time they kind of had a draft where it was like, it could be good. You didn't, like, nobody's wowed by it. It ended up being one of their best drafts of the Steve Kime era. Uh, Jesse, what'd you think? You go out there and you get Zayvon Collins in the first round, and then you come back in the second round and you go Rondale Moore, which as much as receiver was a need, was it as much of a need as cornerback? Well, I, I love the Zayvon Collins pick. I, I'm going to be completely honest here. I did not know who he was before Thursday. But now you do. But now I do. And just from his quotes, just from the highlights that they showed on, I was watching the ABC telecast of the draft with uh, the college, the college analysts, um, and they showed his highlights, and he was very impressive to me. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think he's got you know that that makeup of a really really good inside linebacker who's gonna you know have hundred tackle seasons after hundred tackle seasons. So I really like him. And then Rondell Moore, definitely injury concerns there for me. But, um, I mean, he was insane if you ever watched him at Purdue when he was actually healthy. And then, you know, I, I, corner third round is works for works for me, I think. I mean, I, I would I might have gone earlier and then waited around for someone like Amon Ra St. Brown, who I really liked. But but I, I overall, I, I would give them a, a solid, a solid grade in the draft. Yeah. So the only area where I would look and be, and be a little concerned is just at corner because of all the positions going into the draft. That was really the only one you looked at and you're like, OK, they need to add a corner for week one of the season. Look, anybody you take outside the first round, you're hoping you're not starting him in week one. Pick 16, though, I mean, in theory, if it had broken right, if J.C. Horn or Patrick Sertain had been there, that's a guy you're drafting, and you're probably plugging him in in week one. Now, I get that they weren't there, and I want to be consistent. I mean, for the last three months on this show, talking about the uh, the NFL draft and looking at mock drafts, I repeatedly said, I don't want them to reach at a position just because of need if they can get the top guy at another position there. And in their mind, very clearly... Zaven Collins was, you know, linebacker one or two. And 
I mean, he was the second one off the board, I think, overall anyway. Whereas at corner, they just didn't seem all that into the idea of taking Greg Newsom. And Caleb Farley is just, like, there's a really good chance Tennessee got a steal at 22. But the health stuff right now is, at, at pick 16, I understand why the Cardinals were a little nervous about that. So they go linebacker, and yeah, I mean, Micah Parsons was the only other linebacker off the board. That's what I've been saying for the last three months was get the guy in the top tier of a position on your board. You have enough needs, even though I feel like corner was was the most pressing need, where I don't want like the guy that might be like the fifth best corner, he's down in tier two or tier three, when a tier one linebacker or receiver is there. And at that point, you got to trust your board as a team. It seems like they may have been a little bit higher on Collins than than some other teams, but that's only because they you hear Steve Kime talk about Collins. He talks about him like he was like the they would have taken him at three. So everybody was high on him. The Cardinals were especially high on him. And at that point, yeah, take him. Don't don't reach for a corner. But that said, when you're drafting Marco Wilson in the fourth round and you're drafting Tay Gowan in the sixth round, those are guys you don't really want to see much this season. Doesn't mean they can't pan out. Gowan in particular is is interesting because a lot of, like Todd McShay had his pre-draft rankings. He had Gowan uh, 85, I want to say, and the Cardinals got him with the 223rd pick in the draft. So that's pretty good value. But overall, it's, uh, I like the the positions they addressed. They just kind of did it a little bit out of order, but I but I do understand why. What I don't get, and, I, and I've gotten into a few people with this uh, off the air, and some people really agree with me, but others don't. I, I don't get why they haven't added a running back. Chase Edmonds is signed for one more year. James Conner is signed for one more year. But Chase Edmonds, I like Chase Edmonds a lot. Maybe he can do over 16 games, what we've seen him do in the past for like two or three games at a time. And then if he can, fine. I wasn't taking a running back in the first round or the second round. I might have grabbed one in like the sixth round. If the guy doesn't pan out, whatever. You had two sixth round picks and two seventh round picks. And we've seen good running backs in the NFL that were taken in the second half of the draft. That's the only thing. It's a small point. Uh, but with Edmonds and Connor both being free agents after this year, doesn't mean they're both walking. But also like, Running backs get hurt seemingly every other play. (laughs) So I'd like to have a little depth. I would assume they're going to add somebody else at that position before the season actually starts. But, but other than that, I mean, like you said, pretty, pretty much just a solid draft. Okay. Back to the Phoenix suns. Got the win over Oklahoma city last night, 46 and 18 on the season. And uh, Monty Williams was asked afterwards how he felt about his team's uh, response. Yeah, just, you know, communication with our players is, is important. You know, we had a film session today where, you know, the coaches talked. We allowed for the players to have input. We talked to players after film sessions about things we can do better. Uh, it's, it's the reason why I love our team. We have a bunch of sore losers, and we also have guys who – have created a standard of basketball. And when we don't play to that standard, they don't feel good. So that's a good thing. That's something that we value. Um, Our conversations were about that today, playing to our standards, no matter who we're playing and letting the chips fall where they may. Um, And so, you know, I I always expect us to play at a high, high level, be a top 
10, top five defense, top 10 offense, and, and try to improve that. Yeah, and look, I mean, they're doing it. Monty Williams has his team running like a well-oiled machine. The I don't even want to call it an issue, but I, I think we need to like address this before the playoffs start. Devin Booker's made it pretty clear he's not been happy with the officiating. Now, I know by the nature of the sport and the NBA in general, there's there's not many there's not many NBA fans who are ever happy with the officiating. Would you agree with that? that that's a pretty fair statement, right? I mean, outside of like maybe the Bulls in the 90s and like the Lakers recently. Yeah, I mean, nobody's going to ever be very happy with the officiating. I I personally try to just stay away from that talk, but um, you know, there are some times when you know I've noticed that Book doesn't get the same kind of calls that a lot of stars do. He doesn't, and see that's the thing. So there's a couple ways to look at this: Is Devin Booker getting the same calls that other All Star players around the league are getting? No, he's not. He's not. He just isn't. Not consistently. But the problem is, this is just the way it is in the NBA, and it's stupid. It's like when you go to get a job out of college and they're like, well, you need experience before you can get this job where we give you experience. Like, you have to win before you get the calls in the NBA. Devin Booker getting frustrated at the officials is not helping because the last thing the Suns need is to go into the playoffs with this reputation that is not good in the officials' eyes. I get the frustration Certainly, like, even if you're not watching a Suns game, sometime just go on Twitter when, like, you know, I don't know if you're if you're if you're in the car, somebody's driving. Don't go on Twitter when you're driving, but somebody's driving and you're like going somewhere to watch the game, and it's the second quarter. Just go to Twitter. People, there's a lot of Suns fans unhappy with the officiating. And again, for the most part, you're probably right. But before we all lose our minds, the team's 46 and 18, and and for Booker and, and any of the players specifically, it's like. If you if you get the officials turning on you before the playoffs start, like a bad call in the final minute or two against Oklahoma City or whoever, I didn't even think that was necessarily the original call that bad last night, but that stuff is, that's that, that should just wash right off you. When you get some horrible call against you in game six of, the, of a best of seven series because the officials hate you, that's a bigger issue. That's not something I want to deal with because realistically, this Suns team is good enough where if all games were just officiated evenly, which they never are in the NBA, but if they were, don't you feel pretty confident the Suns are at least winning two playoff series this year? You know, depending who you play. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, 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 at this moment, I have them going to the finals. So yeah, just because I the Lakers, I just don't know how healthy they are. So the I mean the the most infuriating thing like don't get me wrong if the Suns lose to the the Nuggets in the Western Conference Finals and it's totally clean and it's officiating isn't an issue it's still going to sing sting and it's it's still going to it's going to be brutal but that's at least like you could accept that whereas if they lose on a horrible call or a horrible series of calls like if you lose on a one horrible call you should be able to overcome it if the other team shoots 30 more free throws than you because the officials hate you that is really going to be that's that's the sort of loss you never get over. So I just don't want to get into that position. I, don't, I Like I said, everybody's unhappy with the officiating in almost every city. I think Suns fans in particular have a bit of a gripe because you look at all these teams that are good this year. The Suns are really the only ones that are new this year. I guess the Mavericks, but you know Luka's getting all the calls. But like these other teams, the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Jazz even, the, the Lakers... 
those teams are going to get the benefit of the doubt and calls if if the if it's a coin flip over the Suns. That's it's stupid, but it's the way it's been in the NBA forever. All right, we come back. We'll get back into the NFL draft and outside of the Cardinals. What exactly does the NFC West look like now? That's next. It's the rundown with Luke Lipinski on ninety eight seven FM Arizona Sports Station. <laughs> Luke Lipinski, 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. All right, welcome back to the show here. We're getting to the uh, NFL draft. I do want to clear up, though, what we were just talking about with the, uh, the NBA officiating. I don't, I don't think that they, I don't think the first round of the playoffs, the Suns are going to be getting bad calls against them because Devin Booker got a technical against Oklahoma City. What I don't want is Devin Booker or anybody on this team getting so caught up in the officiating that it throws them off their game. And I also just, you got to pick your spots. Like, that's the other thing. I don't want to see game three of, of the of a playoff series against the Clippers or something, and and Booker gets teed up in the first quarter for a call that, like, you have plenty of time to, to make up for. And then at that point, I do think, I, I maybe maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, but if I ever am a conspiracy theorist, it's when it comes to NBA officiating. At that point, I do think, you know, you get, you get, Getting the officials' face early in the in, in game three of a playoff series, and they're going to hold it against you as much as they officiate you for the rest of that uh, that that game, certainly in, in that series. It's uh, I only say it because I think the Suns are good enough where it, all things equal, I think they're going to win a lot of games in these playoffs. Uh, to the NFL draft, we get some clarity, kind of, on what the 49ers are doing at the quarterback position. Trey Lance is the third overall pick, so now they have Jimmy Garoppolo, and they they made it through Sunday with Jimmy Garoppolo on the roster, so that should be a relief for Kyle Shanahan. Um, you have you have Garoppolo, you have Trey Lance, and you have a team that really should have Super Bowl aspirations. They were just there two years ago. They were beating the Chiefs in the second half of the Super Bowl. So they are built much like the Seahawks are, much like the Rams are, much like the Cardinals are, are <laughs> much like they're trying to be. You have four teams in one division that have Super Bowl aspirations, but all of a sudden now the 49ers have the most complicated quarterback situation. Because I would assume their plan at this point is let's have Jimmy G start for a while and see how things go, but ideally we'd like to bring Trey Lance in as the season goes on. I guess their perfect situation would be Garoppolo plays the whole season. Lance learns under him because he's relatively inexperienced even by rookie standards, and then Lance takes over next year. But that's that's a, that's an awkward situation right now. Because you've basically told Jimmy Garoppolo, yeah, we don't really want you, but can you stick around? It's like firing somebody but being like, can you work the next three months, though, to help us out? But your replacement's here and we don't want you. Like, that's kind of, and of all the positions on the field, it's not long snapper, it's starting quarterback that you did that to. So, hopefully Kyle Shanahan's political game is good and he can get Garoppolo well, hopefully it isn't, actually. I would much rather see the 49ers go 0-16. But hopefully for San Francisco, his political game is good, and he can get Garoppolo on board. But now, to me, the 49ers have kind of maybe shown a little bit of a weakness. 
I'm not going to give out any names here or even the location it, it is in, but my friend was hired by a news station and uh, he, the other person's contract wasn't renewed and they had him train under the other person. Ugh. <laughs> wow. That's just awkward for everybody. Like, I'm sure this isn't ideal for Trey Lance either. He's obviously the winner here because he knows he's the starting quarterback next year, like in 2022 for sure. But yeah, that's that's what it is, though, right? Like that example you just gave with your friend is basically what's going on with the 49ers. Now. Yeah, exactly. It's also like it's not like the 38 year old quarterback that's been there for 10 years. that's going to, you know, is like announced. Oh, this is my retirement tour. Let's have this guy. No, Jimmy Garoppolo, like it wants to be a starting quarterback for yeah. sure. Well, and I was I forget who I was listening to over the weekend, but they made this great point that if you're the 49ers, you thought if nothing else, you'd be able to move Garoppolo to the Patriots if it ever came down to that. And if you're Garoppolo, you're like, okay, whatever, I'll get reunited with Belichick. But everything got so messed up at the top of the draft that Mac Jones fell to the Patriots at 15, so they don't need a quarterback now. And even if you don't think Mac Jones is all that good, like I think on paper, and based on what we've seen, he's probably the fifth best of the five quarterbacks that went at the top of the draft. So it's it's fitting that he goes there, or he, that he goes fifth of those five. But the skills he has are, the skills, like what Mac Jones brings to the table is accuracy. And just like, it's a very like, just really good at the simple things. But that's really what made the Patriots great when Tom Brady first broke into the league. If you can just be accurate inside 10 yards, Belichick's going to find a way to move that offense up and down the field with with uh, with Mac Jones. So if you're telling me, okay, you got to rank Jones and Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson and Justin Fields and Trey Lance of who's, you know, in a vacuum or they all play for the same team, rank these guys 1 through 5, I have Mac Jones 5th. But he's obviously in the best position now to succeed. He's even he's in a better position than even Trevor Lawrence. He's definitely in a better position than Zach Wilson. Uh, I guess Trey Lance down the line should be in a good spot. Justin Fields going to the Bears was uh, not necessarily something that we saw in any mock drafts, not uh, not something that was really talked about a lot, and yet the Bears are able to move up. And actually, you know, this is not trading all your picks to move up from 3-2 to two to take Mitchell Trubisky. They took an actual quarterback this time, so this could be interesting. This is what Todd McShay had to say about that move. First surprise, honestly, was Chicago being able to move up from 20 to go get their quarterback at 11. You know, I, I never thought that they'd be able to make that move. We thought Denver could take a quarterback at 9, and once they didn't, then there was an opportunity for some of these quarterbacks to, to fall. And then you, you had New England sitting there at 15. They t- took their quarterback. But Chicago was an aggressive. I love the fireworks here. Chicago was aggressive and, f- and figured out, hey, this is where we got to go up to get our quarterback. And Justin Fields is a perfect fit, and he's going to be an upgrade in the long term for the Bears. And Bears fans have been crazed this offseason about their quarterback situation. Now they've got their guy for the future. I'm glad he said it was fireworks because I thought he was dancing on like bubble wrap as he did the the show or something. <laughs> Some fireworks for a fire take. <laughs> Seriously. Um, back to the Niners real quick. Kyle Shanahan, and I know everybody, every coach, every GM always says this, but in this case, I mean, the 49ers, they knew who the first pick was. They knew who the second pick was. The question was, did they know who their pick was or was that always intended to be a trade chip for Deshaun Watson before all the legal stuff came out? or for Aaron Rodgers or somebody like that. 
Kyle Shanahan says, no, they always wanted Trey Lance. We've been very high on Trey since the beginning, since day one. Um, And yes, the person everyone else is speculating about, we liked him too. Um, But it was just, honestly, to go through this whole process where, you know, no one has known, you know, my friends, coaches, anybody, um, how John and I feel and how we felt this whole time. And we do that because you don't want to sway people in this building. Um, You want everyone to give you just work their butts off and give you their honest info. And that's why we don't share at all how we felt about our conversations when we were on vacation talking in the first two weeks of January about these quarterbacks and comparing them to NFL guys. Um, And when we made the trade, we knew exactly where we were going, what we were doing. Look, Trey Lance is in a good spot. I just don't know that it... It's just weird. It's just weird for the 49ers. I hope they botch it. But, I mean, if you're Trey Lance, you're going to go play for a very good team. And Kyle Shanahan, I mean, there's not a lot of coaches you'd rather have a young quarterback go to if you are that young quarterback. John Lynch followed up on what Kyle Shanahan said and 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 added to the, the odd mystery that the 49ers insisted on keeping around this pick. He said Trey Lance didn't even know he was the guy. The blessing of it all and, and you know, that uh... – was that we got to tell Trey Lance, and Trey Lance didn't know before that. And, and we got to make a, a young man's dreams and a, and a family's dreams. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, we, we got to know a person that uh, impressed us as much on the field um, and, uh, you know, as he did off the field. And, and uh, he was outstanding in both ways. And, um, you know, that goes for a lot of these guys. But, but with Trey, that was a special moment to be able to talk to him because I think it was true surprise. And, um, you know, he had a he had a hunch, I, I believe, and I'm interested to hear from him. But, uh, you know, that that was the first time he heard it uh, when, when we were able to call him. So that was a pretty special moment. It's the only thing I would say. And, and Jesse, tell me if, if the logic makes sense here that I'm about to throw out there. I believe the 49ers to the extent of they knew Trevor Lawrence was going to be off the board. They knew Zach Wilson was going to be off the board. And maybe they like Trey Lance more than Zach Wilson. I don't know. But they knew they were going to have to choose between Trey Lance, Justin Fields, and Mac Jones. I believe them that of those three, Trey Lance was always their guy. But man, we're hearing a lot of reports that they tried to trade that third pick for Aaron Rodgers. It sure looked like before all the the Deshaun Watson stuff came out, when it was just before any of that was, was information that any of us knew, it seemed like they were moving into that pick to try and trade for Deshaun Watson. So don't give me that for the last however many months you've known Trey Lance is going to be your guy. Yeah, I, I, this just makes me think that I can't trust a word that comes out of the mouth of Kyle Shanahan or John Lynch because what did they say like Thursday? Like all all the quarterbacks that are available are yeah. are you know we could pick. Like no, I, I don't believe anything they're saying ever now going forward. So just just you can call me a. A uh, skeptic of the whatever the 49ers are saying. Look, I, I get that it's NFL draft season. Coaches, GMs lie. I get that. I get that. But I'm just, even now, retroactively, like, if Green Bay, in the hours leading up to the draft, the first round on Thursday was like, yeah, you know what? This isn't going to work. You, you Okay, fine. You can have Aaron Rodgers give us the third pick and something else, whatever it would have taken. The 49ers would have done it. They're biting on that right away. Yeah. Like, are you, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers is the surest of things out there. He is the reigning MVP. He is amazing. He That guy is like the most talented. He's not the greatest quarterback of all time, but I think we can 
consider him the most talented quarterback of all time, of course they are going to trade yeah. for him. And and it makes even more sense for a team like them than even like the Jets, right? Like the Jets are trying to build for the future. The 49ers are trying to win right now. So just don't tell us that Trey Lance was always your guy because you would have taken Rodgers. And I think if, if, if Deshaun Watson didn't have the legal issues he has, you would have taken him if he was available and it looked like he was going to be when you traded for that pick. Whatever. All right, when we come back, we'll get a little more uh, NFL draft insight. Jamie Eisner of the Draft Network is going to join us next. It's the Rundown with Luke Lipinski on 98.7 FM, Arizona Sports Station. The Rundown, 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. All right, welcome back to the show. The NFL Draft in the books. Officially, the Cardinals taking five of their seven picks and putting them on the defensive side of the football. And to get a little insight on that and just the draft in general, we're joined on the Coulter Automotive Group Sports Line by Jamie Eisner of the Draft Network. Jamie, thanks for the time. How you doing, man? Doing good. Just coming down from the high of draft season and just you go from incredibly busy to it all just stops in an instant it really is that part's not the best but the the draft season and I don't know I mean I know it was it was big last year just because of we didn't have much else going on in terms of sports but it felt more fun this year it just I don't know it felt more real it really did and it's interesting because I, I think you're looking at a kind of a shift in sports in general to more of a prospect or who's next or you know young men and young women's leagues across the sports world people are almost starting to pay more attention and care more about the building aspect of a long-term build of a franchise than they even are with the immediate results. And that's, that's trickled over to the NFL draft and its coverage as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I know Jets fans that have cared more about the draft than their actual team for about a decade now. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's go with the Cardinals, and the pessimistic Cardinals fan will look and say, okay, well, look, the Cardinals took another positionless linebacker in the first round, and they took another short, fast receiver uh, in the second round this year with Zayvon Collins and Rondale Moore. Now, it's not fair to those guys. Those guys are not the same guys that the Cardinals have drafted in the past. But specifically those top two picks, is that about what you expected, or were you anticipating maybe a move for a corner in there? Well, the first one, more so than the second one, I didn't expect. Um, I did expect them to go after corner with 16 or maybe even try to trade back if they had that opportunity, if one of those top two guys didn't fall to them. or and they, Particularly if they didn't really love Greg Newsom or Caleb Farley because of his medicals. Uh, you know, the Zayvon Collins one is interesting to me because there's a lot to like about him. He was arguably the most dynamic defensive player in college football last year. And I know the phrase positionless linebacker has been thrown out there and, and Steve Kimes and Cliff Kingsbury have both discussed exactly where they want him to play. And they basically want him to be ahead of Jordan Hicks as the Mike linebacker. Yeah. The question is going to be is, can he play that role to the level he needs to at the reported 270 pounds he weighed in at most recently? I mean, the average NFL player at that spot is in that mid two forties. So you're asking him to basically be a defensive end that, at size that is playing inside as, as a middle linebacker. So we'll have to see if he's able to consistently be as agile and as effective as he was last year in college uh, at the NFL level at that size. But dude's an alpha on the field, does a little bit of everything well. Like you, you like the player, just you have to kind of question if that was the most advantageous type of player they could have taken at number 16 without trading back. And uh, I think he'll be a good player for Arizona, but then the question becomes, is it the right fit? Did you really need that relative to some other major positions of need? For Rondell Moore, you know, you're looking at a receiver that 
I think they had to add another receiver to this offense. So I'm not upset that they did that. The Cardinals ran four wide more than any team in the NFL last year. And wide receiver four was primed to be Andy Isabella. So I think having that other option there, particularly in the slot, is not a bad thing. The question for me is, can Rondell Moore be the player to fit in that offense that they want? This is not somebody that has gone vertically down the field a ton. He's got a lot of injury risk, played only a handful of games over the last two years. Um, but he's somebody that if he is healthy and used the right way, he's really dynamic. He's explosive. He's great after the catch. You can manufacture touches for him, but you don't have to. He can get open in other ways. My only concern is going to be, can he be a downfield threat? Because he really hasn't been that, wasn't asked to do much of that at Purdue. And more importantly, can he stay healthy? Because the old cliche makes sense. Your best ability is your availability. And he wasn't available very often these last two seasons. Yeah, I mean, that has a huge risk. What, seven seven college games over the last two years for him? Um, I won't go through all the Cardinals' picks, but what they did do at corner, they get Marco Wilson, who everybody immediately identified as the guy who threw the shoe in the LSU game. They get him in the fourth round, and they do get Tay Gowan in the sixth round, specifically with Gowan. Is that, I don't, to me, it seemed like that was a lot later than he should have gone. Yeah, it, it's funny because he's a guy that kind of seems to get like lost in the shuffle there. Uh, you know, again, neither one of those two corners are really somebody you're looking at to start for you right away. And you basically, you really didn't spend draft capital that indicates either one of those two are going to start for you right away. Uh, but I was a little surprised. That we have at TDN, we had Tay Gowan actually ranked um, several spots ahead of Marco Wilson. Um, so it was one of those ones where maybe if you flip that, you would get a little bit of a different reaction from fans. Maybe a lot like the Raiders' first two picks. You kind of flip the order there, and it falls more in line with where people had him both. Uh, you know, with Marco Wilson in particular, because he was drafted first, he's got a lot of things you like. He just hasn't put everything together. He's got size and strength. He's got a lot of physical traits. That you, if you look at and say, if you were trying to build a corner, he's got a lot of the pieces to the puzzle. But the puzzle is nowhere close to being put together yet. Um, and there was a lot to be desired last year. His, his best college football year was still his year as a freshman at Florida. And there were times where he looked lethargic, pre-snap, post-snap, against the run. So maybe with some really good coaching, some refocusing, um, particularly the way his college season ended, getting in there around professionals, he, they might be able to turn him into something. But if they're asking, asking to play a significant role right away, whether that's because of injuries or elsewise, I think you're going to see pretty significant growing pains. Uh, sticking with that cornerback position then, I mean, like you just said, you're probably not asking those guys, hopefully not asking them to step in and be starters right away. But if that's the case, then your starters at, at corner with Patrick Peterson gone are Malcolm Butler and Robert Alford. And as much as they like Robert Alford and as much as he has looked good in the past, particularly here in training camp, they've never actually gotten a game out of him. So if one of those two guys does have to step in, in your mind, is one of them more NFL ready right now? Um, I guess I, I would say Gowan's more ready because I think his floor for year one is probably a little bit higher, but I don't think any of them are really ready to play major roles right now. And I'm very curious to see what the rest of this offseason, what those first round of cuts that happen in the summer and fall. I imagine the Cardinals are going to be pretty active in those last cut free agent market as we get closer to the season, because I, I'm of the mind right now, you can't go into the season week one with the current group of cornerbacks you have. Uh, you, you give yourself absolutely no protection. And, you know, Alford hasn't pl- basically hasn't played in two years. Yeah. And you can't get, you don't know what you're going to get when you get him back on the field. You don't know how healthy he's going to be. And you, just, you have no safety net right now. So I imagine they're going to be active in bringing some veterans in later in the offseason that get cut from other teams 
and those guys will end up playing maybe more significant roles right away than either Gowan or Wilson. Talking to Jamie Eisner of the Draft Network, one of the positions that I was a little surprised they didn't even attempt to address in the draft, and I've got mixed uh, mixed reaction from people when I say this from Cardinals fans, I was a little surprised they didn't go with a running back, even in like round six or something. Uh, you've got Chase Edmonds, you've never seen him be a starter for a full season, you've got James Conner who... People seem to think he's like 40 years older than he actually is. He's still only 25, but both those guys are signed for just one year, and Connor's been beat up lately. Do you do you see a need, even if it's, a I guess, a veteran now, for them to add another running back before the season starts? I do think it's at least worthwhile. Uh, this is kind of a product of them going into the draft with limited capital. Uh, when, you, when you have limited numbers in general for the amount of lottery tickets you can take on draft week, you really can't spend one on a running back unless it really, really is going to be a player that's going to play a featured role for you. And it, it made it clear with the James Conner signing that they were not going to be in play for the Najee Harris's, the Travis Etienne's, or the Javante Williams's of the world at 16. Uh, so Chase Edmonds is a guy that's been liked by a number of coaching staffs that have come through there. Uh, they, they've had, obviously, three, three coaching staffs in recent memory, and all three of them really enjoyed what Chase Edmonds brought to the table. It's going to be interesting to see how he gets used. Can he handle the workload? Uh, I, I believe the stat I heard that actually Kenny Drake had more carries last year than Chase Edmonds has in his career, uh, which makes sense to me when you kind of given how he was used. I don't know how much James Conner has left in the tank either, but in short yardage inside the red zone type situations, uh, he could still be a factor. I think bringing in a veteran would make some sense. I get why they didn't spend draft capital on one, but uh, to me, I think either way, you need to bring in another third option. With all due respect to, you know, Benjamins and Jonathan Wards of the world, I do think you need, given the fact you Edmonds is an unknown and Connor's injury history, you need another option because the Cardinals have made it very, very clear this offseason. They are trying to win right now. And if they're going to do that, part of that is having contingency plans at key areas across the team in case you have injury troubles. And right now, that is a spot that's maybe not glaring, but should be on their radar. Uh, you mentioned that the Cardinals are are building to win right now, and it is they absolutely are. It's it's a little ironic when you look around the division, and they are the quarter the team with the quarterback that has a longer future. You would think. I mean, the Rams have Stafford, the Seahawks have Russell Wilson. I I don't totally know what the Forty ers have now, but in general, you would think the Cardinals maybe would have a longer leash, except maybe Cliff Kingsbury doesn't, and maybe even Steve Kime doesn't, depending on how this year goes. But when you look at the 49ers, how, what are they doing <laughs> at quarterback? I mean, I, I guess I understand the move to get your quarterback of the future, but can they realistically expect to have Jimmy Garoppolo start all the games this year? No, I don't think that's the plan. Um, I do think Jimmy Garoppolo probably starts week one, and they've kind of boxed themselves into a corner. with They're not really able to move him because the contract is, is prohibitive, and there's a ton of veteran quarterbacks that were available this offseason, so they kind of got – you know, they kind of got lost out in the shuffle of musical chairs there. But uh, look, they, this is interesting to me because I like Trey Lance a lot. I think he's a great fit for that offense. But in a vacuum, I thought he would be a great person to sit for a full season or at least most of a full season. The Niners made this move in an effort to win now, much like the Cardinals did. So you have to wonder, like, when do they switch from the Jimmy Garoppolo train, who's been okay for them, a lot of injury history, doesn't really have – I would say he gets you what you scheme up for him, but nothing more, and he's been hurt. But if this San Francisco 49ers team is fully healthy, uh, I do expect that they're going to be major competitors in the NFC West, in the NFC as a whole. And then the murmurs for Trey Lance are going to get louder and louder, and he is going to start at some point this season. Yeah, you don't typically see a team that's a Super Bowl contender 
put themselves in a position where they're that reliant on a rookie, whether it's this year or it's the end of the season or even next year. I mean, the 49ers are pretty well set up. They they are now very much tied to Trey Lance. Jamie, this is great. What we're going to do is we are going to come back and we're gonna do the reload real quick, and then I want to get into just kind of the rest of the draft, the bigger picture stuff with Jamie Eisner. So that's coming up as well. It's the rundown on 98.7 FM, Arizona Sports Station. 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. The Rundown Reload. Rundown Reload. Hour number two of the show, live from the Auction Community Studios. Luke Lipinski here with you. Jesse Morrison behind the glass. It is the Reload, and we will start with the NFL Draft. Of course, the Cardinals taking five defensive players. Five of their seven picks were defensive players in this draft over the weekend. Maybe not exactly what you would expect going in. I think... I do think if Asante Samuel Jr. had been there, this is just my opinion, but it's it's based on, you know, <laughs> it's an educated guess, I guess you could say. If he had been there in the second round, maybe they go there. They do like Rondale Moore, though, and as you just heard Jamie Eisner last segment say, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to like Rondale Moore. Uh, but so they end up going corner in the fourth round. They traded up. Uh, myself and Jordan Bird were here doing the draft coverage on Saturday, and the Cardinals traded up into that fourth round right before we went on the air, and so we had the Marco Wilson edition. We talked to Max Starks about him, and he said, you know, there's there's, <laughs> there's a lot of good about this guy, but he's also going to have to work to shed that uh, label as just the guy that threw his shoe in the LSU game, and that's fine. Fourth round pick, I mean, he, he, knows, he knows he's got some work to do. I like the Tay Gowan pick where they got him. I, I mean, I saw, I saw plenty of uh, pre-draft rankings that had Gowan in like the 80 range. 80 to 90, and they got him at, what, 240, 223? Yeah, it's, I mean, 223, so they that that's a pretty good value if, if those draft rankings end up being correct. Even if they're not exactly correct, that's such a big range that that's pretty good value for the Cardinals right there. So they get a couple guys to play the corner position, but again, as we've been saying on the show this evening, those are not guys you're hoping play for you anytime soon. Uh, I mean, it's the NFL. You're going to see these guys at some point this season if they're good enough to play just because of injuries and just that's the way the game is. But when you're taking your cornerbacks in the fourth and the sixth round, even if you're getting good value, you're hoping that they you know, they eventually pan out. They are, are projects, and you're hoping that they uh, eventually become the players that uh, even if just one of them pans out, you're hoping that that's, that's how things can work out uh, big picture. Here's Steve Keim on Tay Gowan and the value they potentially got on Saturday when they were able to pick him up. Yes. uh, When you look at the grades we had on him, Bob, uh, we were really surprised, especially, you know, as hard as it is to find uh, perimeter corners, uh, especially when you say, okay, now all of a sudden they're they're six foot one. They have the type of movement skills he does. Uh, He's so good in press coverage, which, again, we we play a lot of in Vance uh, Joseph's system. So uh, the fact that he was available... Yet, when you look at the big picture and you realize that he hasn't played a ton of football, yet still looks that good on tape, still looked that good in his workout, um, you'd like to think that, again, another guy with a high ceiling uh, and another guy who can come in here and learn under some really good veterans, and uh, the sky's the limit, in my opinion, for him. That's Tay Gowan. Cliff Kingsbury was asked, that's Steve Kime talking about Tay Gowan, that Cliff Kingsbury was asked, now that the uh, the draft is over, what was the biggest steal that you guys were able to pull off? That's a tough one. But I would say based on need, um, kind of going into the weekend and how things fell, uh, Marco Wilson, just his athleticism, um, his workout, you know, what we 
think of him as a um, staff and as a personnel department. I mean, he, he's a big-time talent to get where we got him. Now, Steve Kime was asked about Marco Wilson, and again, the fact that right now, right now, fair or not, he's sort of known just as the guy on Florida who threw the shoe in the LSU game, and this is what Kime had to say. Yeah, when, when you always have something like that happen, that's um, sort of a red flag on a guy, so to speak. Uh, you want to find out what they were thinking and emotions. Uh, a lot of times I know calls um, uh, some mistakes like that, and he owned up to it, uh, talked a little bit about it with us. Uh, and, and I think you know the great thing about when you make mistakes, and we all make them, uh, whether you learn from them or not. And he's a guy that, that, that certainly, I think, learned from that mistake and realizes he's got to keep his emotions in check and uh, how that can, can really affect a lot of different people, uh, not just himself. So um, I think he's a guy that will learn from the lesson. He's intelligent. Uh, he really understands defensive coverages and the schemes. Uh, again, the ability to play inside and out. Uh, he's a student of the game, and um, he, he, to me, is a guy who, who really didn't get the credit he deserves. I think he played better than people think. Um, sometimes it can be tough in that conference, obviously, matching up against the people that he did. But when you look at his skill set and the things that he can do, and then you throw in uh, Vance and, and uh, Greg and some of the people here that I think can continue to, to develop him, I think he's got a bright future. Now, Rondell Moore, the receiver out of Purdue, of course, was their second-round pick, and he was asked after he was drafted what he brings to the Cardinals. For me, I think it's just my versatility, being able to go win in the slot and run options, being able to stick my foot in the ground and make you miss, run past you. Um, if you need a big play, if you need a short uh, down play, whatever the, the case may be, and just being dynamic in the return game. So, on return and kick returns. Yeah, they had us write uh, like a rapid reaction piece after the second and third rounds. Cardinals obviously didn't pick in the third round, but after that second round pick of Rondale Moore for the uh, for ArizonaSports.com, and all the hosts just kind of wrote in like just you know quick couple sentences reaction. We do this a lot during the the season or anytime there's there's big sports news. And my reaction to Rondale Moore, I said this in the piece. It, it's not anything against Rondale Moore. It's just more we got through the first two and then ultimately three rounds of the draft, and the Cardinals still didn't have a cornerback. If you can set that aside for a second, because to me, and I think most people, that was very clearly their biggest need heading into the draft. If you can set that aside for a second, though, what Rondale Moore just said right there about what he potentially brings to the Cardinals is 100% true. I mean, this guy is a wild card. I know I know it's easy to look and be like, okay, great, they took another short receiver that's fast. I mean, they've done this before. They did that with Andy Isabella. They've, they, you know, they've, they've, they've gone down this path before. And that's fine, and, and I, don't, I don't blame you if you have that thought. But Rondell Moore is obviously a different guy. And, uh, and if he can go out there and produce and make plays that are like electrifying, just potentially game-changing plays, I'm interested to see how he fits in this offense. I'll just say that. I'm a little worried that he only played the seven games over the last two years in college. Not that that means he can't play a full 16-game season, but just there's some unknown. And I don't like a ton of unknown with my second-round pick. But either way. I'm interested to see how he fits in this offense because if they can utilize him to the the fullest of his abilities, that that could be a lot of fun. Over to basketball, the Phoenix Suns 46-18 this season. That is tied with Utah for the best record in the NBA, but of course they hold the tiebreaker over Utah because they keep beating Utah. So you now get to the point in the year where you have eight games to go if you're the Suns, and... Still, I mean, you you want you want the number one seed not just for superficial reasons. It's not just to be like, hey, look at us, we finished first in the regular season because 
when we get to the second round of the playoffs, you're not really going to care about that. But in the first round, it gives you your best chance to play a relatively easy team, right? I mean, the Western Conference, as it turns out, is is still, it's just, it's brutal. It's, you know, we were going into this season and certainly going into last season. You're like, where where is there even room for the Suns to make the playoffs last season? And then this year, it was like, how high can they really climb? Well, here they are as the number one seed, so apparently they can climb pretty high. But it's almost impossible to really see an easy first-round matchup. Because here's the other teams making the playoffs in the West. You've got the Suns. You've got Utah, Denver, the Clippers. They're not going to play any of them in the first round, thankfully. Right now, Dallas, the Lakers, and Portland all tied for 5th, 6th, and 7th. I don't think any of those are easy. I mean, I think the Suns would beat Dallas or Portland. The Lakers, we got to see, because now LeBron's kind of banged up again. But... um, None of those, I would say, are easy. Then 8, 9, and 10, the other teams that are currently in that play-in spot are Memphis, Golden State, and San Antonio. You'd love it if the Suns got Memphis or San Antonio somehow in the first round. I mean, if it just played out the way, in theory, it should play out in that play-in tournament, they would get Memphis. And that's, that's a series I think the Suns could really handle the Grizzlies. Golden State, yeah, I mean, they should beat Golden State. They're significantly better than Golden State, but I don't really want to... I don't want to see Steph Curry in the first round of the playoffs. And San Antonio, they absolutely should handle them, too. And that would be quite fun, actually, <laughs> to see the Suns uh, finally get back into the playoffs for the first time since 2010 and then begin a potentially impactful run by just hammering the Spurs in the first round. That would almost be fitting, actually. There's a, there's, a Am I going to talk myself into to rooting for San Antonio? in that play-in round to, so we get Sun Spurs in the first round. Nah, maybe not. I'm still not over. I'm still not over the Robert Ory incident. I know it's been over a decade. Whatever. Uh, the Suns will be in Cleveland tomorrow. We'll see if they if they manage anybody's minutes here down the stretch. They haven't been doing that. And I, and I got to be honest, I, I I really, I respect it. I like it. I mean, I hope I, hope I don't eat those words in the playoffs. But I don't want to mess with the routine at this point. Cleveland tomorrow. Atlanta in Atlanta Wednesday, and then they come home to face the Knicks. Uh, they've got one more game against the Lakers in L.A. this upcoming Sunday, May 9th. Another one against Golden State, Portland, a couple against San Antonio. So not like not a ton of easy games other than tomorrow against Cleveland, but uh, maybe some some good tune-ups for the playoffs. Nothing nothing too extremely difficult here down the stretch. Not like they close with like the Clippers and Nuggets and Jazz or anything back-to-back. Uh, it, it is, you know... It is interesting that they just, for whatever reason, cannot put away these bad teams up by 18 at one point against Oklahoma City, and they have to hold on for a three-point win last night. Is it a character flaw of your team? Maybe. It's not going to matter when the playoffs start. It is very strange. It's very strange because now it's not like a, it's not a forced narrative. They keep doing this. And I really do believe it's not that they go into these games taking their opponent lightly. I think it's when they get up by double digits on a bad team. They're like, oh, we got this. And I don't know why they keep doing it, because now we are 64 games into the season. But generally speaking, they keep winning the game, so I don't really care how much they beat these teams by. I understand the sort of stress it causes Suns fans with the playoffs now just about two weeks away, and you're like, you can't, why can't you just put Oklahoma City away? Why do we have to sweat this out? Why do you look so much better against Utah than Oklahoma City? I, I get that. I just don't think it's going to matter in a couple weeks. But it is strange. I will 100% grant you that. 
Uh, the Diamondbacks. How about the run that the Arizona Diamondbacks are on? They've won 10 of their last 13. Two points out of first place in the NL West. I want to get so excited about it, and then I realize the team they're two games behind is the San Francisco Giants, and that's just a, a very, very strong reminder that we are 28 games into a 162-game season. But that doesn't take away from what the Diamondbacks have done, winning 10 of their last 13, 15 and 13 overall. They've been doing it without Cattell Marte, which makes it that much more impressive. They are getting strong pitching up and down the lineup now. Madison Bumgarner looking pretty good again in his last outing. I mean, if he's going to be a, a legitimate top two starter for your team, we'll see. We'll see what this team can do. I, I, I don't expect anybody running down the Dodgers or the Padres in this division. I get that. That's fine. But you don't have to run down the Dodgers or the Padres to make the playoffs. To be fair, the D-backs are a half game behind the Padres. They've beaten them a couple times this year, and they're a game and a half behind the Dodgers. But again, we're 28 games into a 162-game season. But if you can play above 500 and you can, you're capable of going on a run like they just went on and, and really are still on, I mean, there's five playoff spots in the National League. Why not? Why, why can't you at least be in the thick of things? And uh, it, it early on, it looks like the D-backs are going to hang around this race. They start a series with the Miami Marlins tomorrow in Miami. Marlins kind of a fun team. It would have been uh, interesting to see Jazz Chisholm play for the uh, the Marlins. He's hurt right now. He's off to a great start. Obviously, that's the uh, the guy the D-backs traded, but they got Zach Gallen back, so I don't, I don't think they're too upset uh, about that one. And over to hockey, the Coyotes at home tonight, getting set to take on the LA Kings, renewing that rivalry, which always seems to get physical the seventh meeting between those two teams this season, and they're going to play an eighth one on Wednesday. L.A.'s all but eliminated. They, they're still mathematically in it, but the Coyotes can really... Uh, they don't even have to, to push L.A. any further. L.A.'s not going to make the playoffs. Coyotes need to win out if they want to make the playoffs, and they're going to need to get some help. They had a, a nice uh, series over the weekend, Thursday and Saturday, against Vegas. Took three out of four points. Really felt like they got kind of screwed over on a uh, on a penalty call in overtime on Saturday. They did. I I'm I go back and forth on it. It's not a call you look at and you're like, oh, what a terrible call. But it is a call you look at and you're like, why are you calling that? Why why would you call something? It was it was too many men on the ice. Alex Goligoski was was getting off the ice. I mean, he was going to the bench. And generally in hockey, unless the puck hits that guy that's going to the bench, they don't call that. And for whatever reason, they called it in overtime on Saturday. And Vegas promptly scored four on three in overtime. When you get a power play, they scored just seconds later, and that was that. So the Coyotes get three out of a possible four points. They probably got to get eight out of eight here in these final four games down the stretch. All right, when we come back, we're going to get back into the topic of the NFL draft. We're going back to Jamie Eisner of the Draft Network. He's going to give us his thoughts on just the NFL draft as a whole outside of what the Cardinals have done. That's next. It's the Rundown with Luke Lipinski on 98.7 FM, Arizona Sports Station. Lipinski, 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. Welcome back to the show. Luke Lipinski here with you. I want to get back into our conversation about the NFL draft since this is our first show since even the first round took place. Now we know all the Cardinals picks, but we also know all the other teams picks, obviously, and some of them made a lot of sense. Some of them were expected, but some of them kind of went off the board. So let's get back here with Jamie Eisner. And Jamie, when you look at those top five quarterbacks with uh, with, with Trevor Lawrence, obviously going first, almost the forgotten guy in this draft because we've known he was going first for a year and a half. And then Zach Wilson going second. 
Trey Lance goes third. Justin Fields goes to the Bears at 11, and Mac Jones goes to the Patriots at uh, at 15. Given their landing spots and then what you know about them just as players coming into this league, I guess take Trevor Lawrence out of the equation for a second, but those other four, usually what is it? It's like 40% of quarterbacks taken in the first round really actually succeed at the NFL level. Do you have a favorite in there, or do you have one you're more worried about than the others? Well, probably my favorite. There's a couple of this ones here. Like in a vacuum, my favorite would probably be Justin Fields. Uh, I-, I still think he's gotten severely, he's got a bad deal. Um, through this draft process. I'm not sure why the narratives across the draft Twitter and the league shifted on him so dramatically from the time football stopped being played to the time we got to the draft. Uh, You know, he's somebody that we had as our QB2 as a consensus, even over Zach Wilson here at TDN. And that was across all five scouts that we have on staff. They all had, it was very close between the two, but they all had fields over Wilson, which was antithetical to what you saw mostly around the league and in most draft prognosticators' rankings. Uh, I think he's in an interesting spot in Chicago right now. You still have Allen Robinson there. You still have Darnell Mooney. Anthony Miller's there for now if he doesn't get traded. Uh, they bring in Dash Newsom late. Like That's a team that could be interesting offensively for him, and he's got the rushing ability to have some more success as he continues to grow and maybe learns to get out of the pocket a little bit more and use those legs. Um, from a scheme fit standpoint, Trey Lance would be awesome with Kyle Shanahan, but I also think he's the most draw. He's got 17 college starts under his belt, all in the FCS. So you're going to have to project a little bit more for him, particularly if you're going to throw him in the fire in year one. Um, you know, to me, if I had to be worried about one, I think it's Matt Jones. I think he's the least talented of the bunch there. Uh, we, a lot of our guys here had like a third round grade on him. Uh, but obviously that's not, you know, third round graded quarterbacks tend to get pushed up the board because of the position. I, I just think he's got a low ceiling. Uh, and look, is he improvement over what the Patriots currently have there in New England? I think so. But I also don't think he has anywhere near the ceiling of the top four quarterbacks off the board. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about Fields because I really don't fully understand why he dropped so much after the season ended anyway. I mean, there were people talking during the season, and it was crazy, but there were people saying maybe this guy's almost as good as Trevor Lawrence, and then all of a sudden the season ends and, and he becomes the fourth quarterback off the board. And going into the draft, it was just a foregone conclusion. Zach Wilson was going to be the second one off the board. What have you seen from him, and, and, and what is it exactly that experts suddenly love so much about him? So Zach, because he's he's such a dynamic player. Like he's got the energy, and his he makes a lot of these big throws. Like he wants to attack the honey hole on the sideline between the linebacker and the corner, or the corner and the safety, depending on which receivers are going in that spot. You know, he also was just consistently dominant across the board pretty much all season long. And and I think part of that's the competition that he played. Part of it is a simple fact of when you are kind of in this riser, when people start to really get your attention. And BYU was playing a lot on like Friday night. They were and not only with the night of the week, but because a lot of games getting canceled, Zach Wilson got featured, and he just looks the part. He's got he's got the swagger. He's made some of these big throws. Where I think on the Justin Fields side, if you watch like the Indiana game, you watch the Northwestern game, there were some warts there. But I think that's unfair. The competition that Justin Fields had to go up against throughout from the start to the finish of the season was light years ahead of what Zach Wilson had. And that's not to say that Zach Wilson's a bad player. I, he's very good. But I think at some point you kind of get this momentum and you kind of go with what you saw most recently. And it's just in terms of what you saw on tape last season, Zach Wilson didn't put a lot of bad tape out there where Justin Fields had a couple things. So if you wanted to knock him down or you wanted to, you know, put your franchise on the line there, 
You look at what you saw most recently, and one had a couple more bad games than the other. But I think they're way closer in ranking than they were being discussed with for most of the draft process. Talking to Jamie Eisner of the Draft Network. Jamie, I want to ask you about a couple more guys before we let you go. One of them, I I have to bring up Kyle Pitts. There were a couple mock drafts a couple weeks ago that had the Cardinals trading up to seven to get him, and that was never going to happen because he was never going to last to seven. But from what you've seen from Kyle Pitts, you know, I've made this point in the past. Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, the two generational tight ends in the league right now were, were much later picks in the draft. One was a third, one was a fifth, I believe. Kyle Pitts, though, goes in the top five. Is he as good as everybody assumes? And do you like Atlanta as a fit for him? Based on what we've seen, yes. Uh, it's always tough. I mean, there are always can't-miss prospects in the draft cycle that bust. But he's got short hands, wide catch radius. He's a mistake eraser. Like, you throw the ball anywhere near him, he is going to get it. Uh, you know, he is so quick and agile for someone that's six six, just under 250. He can run after the catch abilities. He separates like a top wide receiver. Like, he does a little bit of everything well. And, and calling him a tight end is limiting. Like, it's just it, he is more of a wide receiver, and that's the way he's going to be used more often than not. They're not going to put his hand in the dirt and ask him to block a ton. Because there's some, he's okay at it, but that's not why you get him. Uh, I like the fit in Atlanta a lot just from a, a perspective of Arthur Smith loves to get tight ends involved in his offense. There are a ton of weapons there in Atlanta, and there's going to be a ton of passing volume that he can have a lot of success with. And he might step into bigger roles in the next couple of years, particularly if these Julio Jones trade rumors pan out and he is moved either this year or next year. You know, you could question whether or not maybe they should have taken a quarterback there, maybe try to trade back. But uh, if they were going to stick in that spot, Pitts was the best fit for them. And I'm really, really excited to see him and what he's able to do at the NFL level. All right, before we wrap it up, any names that really stood out to you as probably should have gone higher than they did? Like any steals or anybody, I guess, that fell and just kind of you don't really totally know why? Yeah, there's always a couple of them, and usually you find out it's it's injury-related. Um, you know, Aziz Ojolari fell out of the first round down to 50, the defensive end for the Giants. Found out he had a knee injury coming into it, so there were some issues there. Uh, we just recently found out earlier today that uh, JOK, Jeremiah Rusu Koromoa, had a, was flagged for a heart concern. Uh, he was somebody that was being discussed in the top 20 conversation, fell all the way to the Browns at 52. Uh, but so those were guys that I looked at and I thought, you know, Tevin Jenkins, another one that goes to the Bears, kind of fell out of the first round. All of those guys were like pretty well considered first round picks that kind of fell. Um, and, you know, for some reaches, and let, let's stay in the division for a second, and maybe I want your thoughts on this too, Luke. I don't get the 2-2 Atwell selection by the Rams. Uh, it's a team that needs offensive line help. You've already pretty deep at receiver. And you're taking a player that is, I mean, we talked all about Devonta Smith's weight coming into this. 2-2 Atwell is my, my, be the smallest player in the NFL next year. Uh, so that was one that really shocked me, and that's one that Cardinals fans should be probably paying a lot of attention to. That's in the division that also added a guy like Dwayne Eskridge in Seattle, I don't get that one at all. Yeah, specifically on Atwell, too. I mean, the Rams are notorious for just never having a first-round pick, so that was their first pick of the draft. And I understand, you know, he's still the 57th guy off the board, but that's your first pick. And like you said, I just I don't feel like the Rams needed that. You know, it's, it's not even necessarily a knock on him. It's just I don't really totally understand why the Rams needed to do that. Um, on the receivers, those top three with Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith and Jamar Chase – any sort of projections on how you see those guys going? I mean, are they all grouped together in that tier? Is that fair? Or is there one that you think will separate himself now that you see where they've gotten drafted? So Chase and Waddle both have, look, all three have the skill sets to be incredibly successful. The issue is, I think you look at 
Devonta Smith, and he's going down there to Philadelphia. Jalen Hurts is the quarterback. We're not fully sure what we're going to get from him as a passer in year two. And quite frankly, whether he's even the long-term answer or even the 2022 starter for that Philadelphia Eagles team. So you have to be a little concerned there. Uh, you look at Jalen Waddle, who I think is as talented as any receiver in this class, is extremely explosive and is a great fit in Miami because he brings something to that receiving room that they currently lack as an explosive inside guy. But Tua Tagovailoa had a lot of growing pains last year. Can he step forward this year? I expect he will, but it's tough to project exactly how far forward he can go. Jamar Chase is in the best landing spot for him. Like He's got that connection with Joe Burrow. He's on an offense that prior to Burrow's season-ending knee injury had the second-most passing attempts in the NFL last year. He can do it all. He will step in as their wide receiver one and will get peppered with a ton of targets. So I expect Jamar Chase to have the best rookie season of the bunch. And I think probably right now the best early career just because he has the most advantageous quarterback situation of the three. Jamie Eisner, the Draft Network. Great stuff as always, man. We look forward to talking to you again when we get closer to football season. Thanks for having me, Luke. That's Jamie Eisner of the Draft Network, who joined us on the Culture Automotive Group Sports Line. Culture Cadillac Tempe, experience the difference. Visit culturecadillactempe.com. When we come back, we'll get back into basketball and just kind of take a look around the NBA. Less than two weeks left in the regular season. There's some surprises in the standings. We'll get into that next. It's The Rundown with Luke Lipinski on 98.7 FM, Arizona Sports Station. The Rundown, 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. Welcome back to the show. The NBA regular season wraps up for the Suns two weeks from last night. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the playoffs to start. I've I've enjoyed the whole experience this season of us all looking around, convincing each other how good the Suns are because they are, but we all know they are. Now we're all just telling each other that they are. I'm ready for the playoffs uh, at this point. There are some interesting storylines here, though, down the stretch, and I want to start with this clip from Monty Williams just in terms of how he intends to treat the last few weeks before the playoffs start for Phoenix because, again, in this era of load management, DeAndre Ayton, Mikael Bridges, Devin Booker, Chris Paul have missed a combined five out of 256 possible games, right? Because, I mean, they've all played 64 games for the Suns times four. So 256 potential games up to this point. And those four, the big four, have missed just five games, which I love it. It's admirable. But uh, but now how do you handle these these final couple weeks when you know you're locked into at least a top three spot, realistically probably top two, and there's a good chance you're getting number one. I don't think anybody in the league is able to look at a rotation right now. You know, I've heard all this stuff about resting players. I've heard a lot of things, and, and you just can't. Um, because of COVID, because of injuries, um, because of the schedule playing back-to-backs, you're going to have different lineups. I guarantee it. You look at every team, they're going to have different starting lineups and different rotations for the rest of the year because of the circumstance. And then once you get to the playoffs, everybody's going to introduce their playoff rotation. And then every, all you guys are going to be like, okay, there it is. But until then, everybody's juggling right now. You know, I'm watching games every night, and I don't see the same rotations by any team that's out there. Um, so I, I just think we're all kind of trying to manage and win games. And, and I've said this, you know, I'm, I'm concerned with how we play as we go into the, the playoffs now that we made it. And I think our players feel the same way. 
Yeah, as I've said a few times, and even really the last few years before the Suns were even in this position, but certainly this year, I respect the teams that play their players. <laughs> it's, it's it's a very basic concept, and I understand if you've got if you're a team that is you know contending for the title year after year, you may want to rest one of your best players, you know, a, a couple games down the stretch. But in general, I don't even like it for your team. I mean, I, I don't think it's the best thing in the world for your team because, as you just heard Monty Williams say right there. This year in particular, nothing is given. Everything's so thrown off this season, and you know, the Suns got a good thing going. 46-18, and 18, I don't want to disrupt that a whole lot down the stretch. It, I mean, I, look, I get that you know, maybe a guy like Chris Paul, you would think, would need a little bit of rest. Not, not that he can't play in the playoffs if he doesn't get any rest, but like, I want Chris Paul at his absolute best. But Chris Paul's the guy leading the charge for the Suns to not rest anybody, so... It, maybe it's an easier decision than it seems. Either way, I like that the Suns are just still going all in. I, I would much rather hit the playoffs in stride as opposed to using the last couple games to, to have to ramp up or the first couple games of the playoffs. I never understand teams that, that sit their best players the last few games of the regular season. At least if you're going to do it, do it now. Or if you're going to manage the minutes do it now so those last few games against San Antonio I think the last two are against the Spurs those games you're basically at full strength you're in in, in a full rhythm and routine going into the playoffs but as with most things I just I like the way Monty Williams is approaching this now LeBron James not happy with the uh, the concept of the play-in tournament and there's a reason Lakers may actually drop down into that uh Monty Williams was asked about his thoughts um and I, I understand the pros and cons I've heard arguments about people who don't like it. I've heard arguments about or from people that do like it. I, I think it's still good for the game based on where we are. If you look at how COVID has affected attendance and viewership, um, you need something to create entry. And, and I get it from the league's perspective. Uh, for me, I think when you put yourself in a position to be at the top of a league that should be a benefit to that. And, and you don't really get that being a one or two seed because you're trying to figure out who you're going to play. So maybe they can figure out a way, you know, if you're in the playing tournament, <laughs> it's kind of goofy, but it's the way my head works. If you make it into the playoffs, you start down, you know, a game or something like that. So if you make the seventh or eighth seed, you're already down one game, you know, and that would be a benefit to the top seeds. Now, most of you guys who cover us know I'm kind of whacked in the head and that would never go through, but I think there should be an incentive for teams to work hard to be in the top seeds and still more to work for if you're in the playing tournament. But I think the idea by the league to create intrigue is a good thing, but I also understand a lot of us who are old school like the way that it was, and that's okay too. Yeah, and look, obviously that idea never would go through, but I, I don't think it's as, uh, what did Monty say, whacked in the head. I, there should be some some serious incentive here down the stretch for these top four teams, really, in the West. I mean, you basically you've got the Suns, the Jazz, the Nuggets, and the Clippers. And those four teams, in some order, are going to be the top four teams. I mean, ideally, you want to be the number one seed because that likely means your first-round playoff opponent's going to be Memphis, uh, San Antonio or Golden State, it, at least in theory. I mean, the play-in tournament kind of muddles things a little bit. 
after the season the Suns have had, are you going to be really psyched to see Steph Curry on the other side of the court in the opening round? But, I mean, that's that's just a byproduct of being in the Western Conference. Where it gets messed up is if you have to play the Lakers. I mean, one of those teams, the Suns, Jazz, Nuggets, or Clippers, is going to play the Lakers in the first round. It should at least have to be the team that finishes last of those four teams. Certainly not the team that finishes first, and it probably won't be. It'll probably be the second or the third. But um, And that right there, to me, is enough incentive to make sure you get the number one seed. But the Lakers, I mean... Right now, entering play today, I should say, in a three-way tie with Dallas and the Trailblazers for fifth, but that means one of those three teams is going to drop to seventh and have to play in that play-in tournament just to make the actual playoffs, which if it's the Lakers, it's hilarious, but it's only hilarious if it doesn't mean the Suns have to play them in the first round. Okay, I want to jump over to hockey here real quick. We've, we mentioned it briefly in the uh, in the reload, but the Coyotes have four games left this regular season. they got the Kings tonight and Wednesday. They've got the San Jose Sharks, who they normally play really well against, but they lost to them twice last week. They've got them Friday and Saturday. And it's interesting because the Coyotes took three of a possible four points from Vegas over the, the kind of the weekend, I guess Thursday and Saturday. Vegas very, very possibly the best team in the NHL, right there record-wise. And uh, the team that they're competing with for the best record overall is Carolina. Vegas is a better team. So the Coyotes get three out of four points from them. But where it's interesting is they lost those two games to the Sharks last week. And it was sort of inexcusable. But I think most people saw that and they're like, okay, the Coyotes are out. Not necessarily yet. They got to almost certainly win out these final four games to make things uh, make things contentious, at least put some pressure on the St. Louis Blues. The situation entering play today was that they were three points back of St. Louis. Again, two points for a win, one for an overtime or shootout loss. So it's it's not like each game is worth a point. It's potentially two if you win. Three points back of St. Louis, but the Blues have three games in hand because of just postponements throughout the season with uh, with teams dealing with, with COVID issues. So the Blues the Coyote season is going to end on Saturday, which is when the Blues season was supposed to end, but then the Blues have three additional games to make up. It's a very strange situation because there's a very real possibility that the Coyotes finish strong here against two teams they tend to play well against, L.A. and San Jose. It's very, it's at least, I don't want to say it's likely, but it's possible that when the uh, the game ends on Saturday, the Coyotes are either tied with or ahead of St. Louis for that final playoff spot, but then they're just going to have to kind of sit around and wait and see what St. Louis does in their final three games, which are against L.A. once and then uh, Minnesota twice. So, like, St. Louis has Vegas coming up here twice towards the end of the week when the Coyotes are playing San Jose. I'm just saying it's not done yet. It's a little bit of a long shot because of those losses to the Sharks last week, but by rebounding against Vegas the way the Coyotes did, they've at least made this... uh, it's still a possibility, and at this point, you're just trying to win as many games here as you can down the stretch, and like I said, put some pressure on the Blues, make them have to earn their way in, and, and, and you just put it into a situation where if the Blues do stumble at all, you're right there to step in second straight year. The Coyotes make the playoffs if they're able to do that, but like I said, probably got to go undefeated here, and they're obviously going to need some help as well. 